everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Uh, well, thank you everyone for coming today. Uh, we're going to do a green building webinar today, uh, the nuts and bolts. Uh, we're going to do just a couple of slides talking about uh, general design issues, and then we're going to go through, uh, talk about uh, how to put a house together, how to put buildings together, communities together that work really well using very little energy. Um, I am not a professional contractor per se, but I have built a number of conventional buildings and I've built a number of straw bale insulated, super insulated buildings, uh, renewable energy, energy systems. Uh, every builder and every person has their own preferences, certainly. Uh, what I tell people when I do green building workshops is that if you ask 10 different uh, carpenters how to build a doghouse, you get 10 different doghouses, nine of which keep the dog dry. Uh, your goal, of course, is to not end up with the one crummy doghouse. But in any case, there's a lot of differences of opinion. Uh, take it for what it's worth. Um, so uh, a couple slides or a couple uh, just uh, talking about the general uh, design issues. Uh, if you've heard, any, heard me speak about anything related to alternative energy, I always start out saying uh, that we focus on energy because uh, that's how we avoid focusing on more difficult subjects. If you really want things to work well, you need to focus on what you're building where for what purpose. You need to think about that a lot before you start thinking about energy. I talked about in some of the other slideshows about people building big, elaborate uh, solar constructions connected to buildings or houses that are, are really badly insulated. Uh, that doesn't work. Uh, from a conservationist standpoint, the cabin on the mountaintop, you shovel a bunch of firewood into it, that may be comfortable for you, but it's not a globally applicable solution. So we're looking at what works on a broader scale. It's 90% context, what are you building where? Uh, cooperative use is what works, uh, sharing of resources. I've talked about this in the other slideshows, the other uh, webinars, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time talking about that now. Uh, just to reiterate, that's 90% of the issue right there, is what are you building where? Think about that a whole lot before you start thinking about energy. 9% uh, conservation, Every dollar you spend on conservation is worth $10 spent on renewable energy sources. Uh, and then when you get the conservation and the context right, then renewable energy becomes much, much easier. If you start trying to throw renewable energy at badly designed systems, it's a mess. But that's the norm. That's what everybody does uh, for various cultural, political reasons. It's politically, it's easier to do that. Uh, personally, it's easier to do, uh, for people to do that mentally, but it's not what works. It's not what works with the laws of physics. Uh, if you want to, I've spent a lot of time assembling and later disassembling or watching various renewable energy systems uh, succeed and fail. Uh, and I've done some bicycle activism in my time as well. And one thing I noticed living in a big city, uh, trying to work with uh, cities to incur to build better bike facilities, better bike lanes and whatnot. Uh, you notice that the people who are, have a really nice car and they drive to work and they, they like their car, you know, if you, if you, they think they should get a bike or they want a bike to play with on weekends or maybe they think they're going to commute to work, but they've got $30,000 or more and some fifty, dollars $80,000 in a vehicle. Cars can cost a lot of money, of course. They'll go out and buy a, a crummy bike and then they'll put it outside and let it rest in the rain. I've seen it over and over again. 
But if you live in a city, particularly even if you live in a rural area and you don't have a car um, and you get a good bike and you rely on that bike, uh, the people who rely on their bicycles take good care of them. They get good rain gear, they get good panniers, they figure out how to fix the tires and how to replace the chain when it wears out and do all this stuff to keep the bike running. Uh, so when it comes to green building and planning, you can build that in there. What happens with solar preheaters, uh, water heaters, I've seen a lot of these get installed and later taken out. If you put in a solar preheater for your electric or gas heater, um, what happens over time is uh, the solar system will run into some glitch. They always do. The gas heater will run into some glitch, but when the solar heater fails, People end up taking it out because the water's still hot, not that big a distant difference in cost. Cost, fossil fuel energy is cheap. So if you want to plan to do this well, you need to plan to rely on your solar hot water. What we have at Living Energy Farm is a great system. It's fairly expensive, actually. It's the most expensive renewable energy system we have on the property, other than, I guess, the main house itself. Was uh, For the main house, we have six flat plate hot water collectors, uh, nice uh, stainless steel tanks. And by the way, at the end of this webinar, I have a, a a list of resources. I'm going to take you to the various suppliers that we have found, at least in the eastern United States, uh, and these are around the U.S., uh, to find the supplies that we have used. So we'll talk about where to get the things we talk about. But in any case, we have a six-panel flat plate solar hot water collection system. We have uh, nice uh, stainless solar hot water tanks, but then we have an Amish-made stainless wood-fired backup water heater, which works great, but it's different than a gas heater because you got to go shovel wood in it. You have to actually do something, whereas gas and electric heaters function on their own. You don't have to do anything. So there is an incentive there to make the solar hot water work. And I've gotten good enough at solar hot water. I can build one of these systems to run for 30 years without touching it. Uh, that's not too hard, but this whole webinar is not about solar hot water. Uh, if you have more questions about that, ask me. Again, solar electric, I've seen a lot of these systems fail when people do them as add-on systems or don't really rely on them or don't aren't willing to reorganize their lives based on uh, the strengths and weaknesses of, of renewable energy, which is what we do at Living Energy Farm. We, we, we are uh, willing to uh, do the work on a sunny day that is best done on a sunny day. So if we take all of those, uh, that preamble, all of those uh, preconditions, and then we get down to, okay, the nuts and bolts of how do we build uh, well-insulated, and, and I would argue community-oriented buildings, uh, down to the nuts and bolts. One thing I came to realize as I worked more and more with various quote-unquote alternative building uh, materials is that our understanding of how buildings built has become, has come to be, has come to be very narrow. Uh, we think of, you know, a rectangular stud frame, uh, you know, sloped roof just has to be that way. The reality is that poor people all over the world have built all kinds of amazing structures uh, you know, if you're in deserts and dry areas, people build into the ground, and, uh, you know, all, all kinds of structures. We don't need to spend a lot of time talking about that. But in any case, uh, my favorite uh, for something that's quick and easy and effective. Uh, so this would be an off-grid house where you're not dealing with building inspectors. Uh, any kind of foundation you need to get below uh, the surface level of the soil. You can't build a house right on top of the topsoil. So uh, you dig down your footings. You do not have to do a full building code footing. In this part of the world, building code for a simple residential house has uh, 18 inches wide, eight inches thick of concrete. You don't really need to do that. Uh, if you're gonna use concrete, you can you know, use less than that, put a little rebar in it. A little bit of rebar is cheaper than a whole lot of concrete. Uh, you can also just use broken rocks. People do what are called rubble trench foundations. Those work fine, just tamp your rock down. I have found, um, 
used uh, broken up cinder block or uh, like pavers, odd size cinder block that people, that you know, you can pick up for scrap. Anything that's hard and non-compressible needs to go between your house and the non-compressible soil that's below the, the uh, topsoil. Now in different parts of the world, if you're in a colder part of the world, uh, even if you're not gonna build the code, you should be familiar with the different parts of code. A building inspector is gonna tell you that code is all about safety and function. Well, a lot of it, it, there's, it's not necessarily, but in those parts of the world where it gets very wet and then very cold, your footing depths are much deeper to accommodate the, the frost heaving. Around here, we're supposed to be down around 18, 24 inches, you know, much further north, you get down much deeper. So even if you're doing an off-code foundation, you need to pay attention to why the code is written the way it is. And you need to get down below topsoil, down below frost level. Um, we always do uh, subgrade insulation, even whether it's a, a, a slab on grade house or a crawl space under the house, either way, uh, put foam around the, uh, uh, the foundation, uh, inside, outside, wherever is convenient. Um, uh, again, we're going to talk about resources at the end. I'll tell you some cheaper sources to get some of this stuff because uh, foam is expensive. Uh, you can use different kinds of foam down there, uh, but yeah, the styrene is what's normal. That's the cheaper stuff. Uh, now for infill, what I normally do, I have done two by four stud. I've also done some buildings. I haven't done this with really large buildings, but with some moderately sized buildings, I have used bamboo poles uh, just kind of lashed together on close centers, maybe one foot centers, uh, and then chicken wire lashed to the outside of that, uh, lashing, all, doing all of that lashing with uh, uh, tie wire, basically. This is the kind of wire, wire you use to uh, tie uh, rebar together. It's just an uncoated steel wire. If you have any old kind of wire laying around, it doesn't matter, it's just steel wire. And then done the same thing, 12, 18, 20 inches, however far you wanna go, inside of that, another bamboo wall, chicken wire lashed to that. What goes in the middle is whatever you have to put in the middle. Uh, you can put straw. It's easy if you can get that baled straw. I have used leaves, uh, uh, crumpled up newspaper, shredded paper. You can put almost anything in there. Now, in the bottom 24, 36 inches, I usually put uh, the, the professional straw balers tend to get a spray can and spray in boric, uh, uh, boric acid. I have gotten uh, to where uh, we use uh, some combination of boric acid, uh, roach, ant, uh, the powder you can buy that's made to kill roaches and ants, and also borax-based laundry detergent, which actually breaks down into boric acid if I've got the chemistry right. Uh, but you want to put something, particularly in the lower parts of the walls, to, to help dissuade the insects from uh, moving in there. And you want decent overhangs, whether you're in a dry climate or wet climate. Well, I guess in a really dry climate, figure out the overhangs. I'm used to building in somewhat wet climates. Uh, do not build walls like this with no overhang. There's California buildings where they have no eaves on the on some of the walls. Don't do that in, where you've got rain. You need to get that rain away from the wall. So on the outside of the chicken wire, chicken wire is really cheap. I guess if you were really determined to do this without any industrial material, uh, you could do it with woven slats, uh, woven saplings or something. I've imagined doing that. I've never done it, but chicken wire is so cheap. And then on the outside, I usually use a cement-based stucco. Other people use a lime-based stucco. Uh, for me, a full-sized house, I mean, the eight-bedroom house we built here at Living Energy Farm, you know, you're looking at, uh, you know, $50 worth of, of cement, even less than that, maybe $40 worth of cement to do the whole building. And then that stucco will last for a century. Without the cement, with just the line, it tends to fall off of there. Uh, and you have to redo it every five or 10 years. And that to me is not, man, a little bit of cement saves a huge amount of headache. On the interior walls, I've done that various ways. I've seen some really nice earthen plasters that people, other people have done. I am not particularly an earthen plaster expert. 
Uh, if you look around on the internet, you'll find more than I know. What I do often is just one layer of clay just to, uh, to kind of fill in the gaps with the chicken wire and my backfill material and then a skim coat of stucco. Uh, you can do that however you want. Uh, the stucco is a little harder and a little less crumbly, although like I say, I've seen some really nice work done with, uh, with earthen plasters. Uh, if you're doing slab on grade, I will often undercut code in terms of the thickness of the cement. I'll go down to about an inch or inch and a half of a fine, uh, 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 fine stone cement. Uh, and, uh, you know, at Living Energy Farm, we used a coarse rock and blew the air under the coarse rock. I've done radiant slabs with a pipe uh, buried in an inch and an inch and a half of cement. I've seen other people do earthen floors and those <laughs> dirt on the walls works better than dirt on the floor. Uh, you know, I, those floors, if, if you're going to have very little traffic and you really want that, uh, sure, great. But if you're going to have much traffic, an earthen floor is not going to hold up. Uh, you do want, uh, if you're in a part of the world that has radon, if you've got gravel under there and you, you want some kind of moisture barrier, what they do, code for radon control is to have pipes that go down below slab level, a moisture barrier, uh, with just heavy plastic, basically. We uh, got a bunch of scrap roofing material, it's called EPDM, and use that, but it's basically a rubbery plastic. Uh, so that basically you think of a very slight air pressure coming up from below the building, building up in that rock layer. You want to be able to vent that up a pipe. Now our forced air radiant slab system vents it that way. But in any case, again, that's a piece of code that's worth uh, thinking about. This is in fact the building that was built with no studs. There's, there's no, well, there's lumber in the roof. So there's a little bit of wood in the roof. The walls of all of this, I built it as a tool shed and then ended up living in it for 10 years because um, I like being outdoors. I slept in uh, in Virginia right through the winters and summers. Uh, just used a lot of blankets in the winters. It was great, actually. It, got, uh, it was fun. But anyway, this is built with nothing but uh, bamboo, chicken wire, and crumpled up newspaper. Uh, so you don't have to have fancy materials. And the windows in this case are scrap storm windows are pulled out of somebody else's. Uh, just got for junk. I found some scrap metal in the woods and that's what set the, uh, the size of the roof. And then there's two feet of crumpled up newspaper in the roof because they didn't want the summer heat coming through that roof and it worked fine. I just sat there crumpling up newspaper and throwing it in the roof and then some wood on the ceiling because I don't want to have to do plastering on the ceiling. But the exterior stucco, the interior, this is the interior. This is that you do one layer of clay. Now that takes a week or two or three to dry and then it cracks up and then you just do a skim coat of stucco over it. It links right into the cracks in the clay. That's my favorite way to do it. You know, there's a lot of different ways to do it uh, in terms of, of these stuccos. Uh, now this is a code straw bale building. What you just saw was an off code straw bale building. Uh, not that different, uh, but again, you've got your code footing uh, uh, that is set by the grade stakes. Uh, what happens in the time in between when you set the grade stakes and the inspector sees it, and when you actually pour the footing, uh, gives you some room for leeway there. Don't want to spend too much time talking about that, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. Uh, code foundations use the cinder block, whether you're doing a foundation, uh, uh, having a crawl space or slab on grade. I usually do cheap two by four stud walls. I've done it with sheathing on the outside. The cheapest way to do it is inlay bracing. When you frame these, so you do your floor first. And when you're framing that, that wall on the floor, you lay one by fours across it mark the studs where the one by fours are, uh, notch, notch it out really quickly with a power saw, you can do it with hand tools too, nail that one by four in there, lean it back up, and then you don't have to use any kind of chipboard or plywood on the outside. You can just nail chicken wire, stack the straw bales, shove some straw in the gaps between the studs. I use a little bit of tie wire to tie these bales back to the wall. Uh, and actually this straw, this drawing makes it look like the bales are 18 inches across. 
I usually turn up on, up on edge. A straw bale, at least in this part of the world, is 18 inches wide, 14 inches tall, and 36 inches long. I usually turn the 14 inch upways. So the 14 plus the three and a half in the wall gets me right up to about 18 inches, which is what I'm aiming for. And again, the stucco on the outside, I'll use a, a cement stucco. I use a waterproofing material uh, we'll talk about later. Uh, and of course, uh, good insulation in the attic. Again, I do, even on code buildings, I do the, the clay and then stucco on the inside. Haven't had any problem with that. Uh, and again, uh, I love radiant floors, either blown under the floor as air or piped through the floor as pipes. Uh, that's really my preference. Uh, I've heard people say that in Virginia, or in moderate climates, the temperature goes up and down so much that you don't really need radiant floors. I disagree, at least in, in Virginia and probably even North Carolina. Of course, I'm Eastern, Eastern based here. I think a radiant floor would, would be great. You don't need one in Florida. You don't need one probably in Georgia, you know, uh, New Orleans, you probably don't need a house like this. This is a cold weather house. Um, so there you go. Ah. Uh, Subgrade insulation, this is, uh, as we were putting the insulation around the foundation at our house, this is a intern, uh, dear friend of ours who stayed with us for a while. Uh, we put four inches and I really should have put a lot more than that. Uh, four inches is well above code. I have an infrared camera now. When you take a picture of this house, you can see the heat leakage coming right through that four inches of foam because we drive the heat down into this floor area. And that dirt down there, of course, now there's a bunch of rock. The actual floor level is up there, you know, a couple of inches above where her hands are now. So all this area is filled in with clay, uh, packed clay. If you're going to do backfill, in other words, you're going to dig it out and put it back in, it needs to be packed, compressed really well. Don't throw loose dirt in there and then build on top of it. Uh, so this is all code approved. Uh, if I had it to do over, I'd put six or eight or 10 inches of foam down there. It really should have had more foam. But it works, it works fine the well it is. And we haven't finished earth berming still around the house. I want to earth burn them up close to the uh, level of the straw bale, which we haven't done yet. Um, another big advantage of this whole organic infill method where you uh, stack the straw bales or use crumpled up newspaper or shredded paper or leaves or old blue jeans, if you could find them, you could fill those walls with anything. This particular structure was built uh, with, again, with no studs. How we did this one was tons and tons of scrap lumber and plywood out of dumpsters, uh, particularly uh, uh, Habitat for Humanity dumpster. Now, when they throw it away, it, it's not good stuff. They use up their own scrap. So what we did with this, we had piles and piles of plywood. So we just laid the plywood on the floor. We didn't butt it. We just overlapped it like shingles on a roof and didn't cut anything. Just laid it all out kind of like a big jigsaw puzzle. And if there was three inches of overlap in one place, fine. If there was two feet of overlap in another place, fine. And then just nailed the bejesus out of it and leaned it up. Now there is, there's framing around the doors and windows, but that is just a plywood wall with no studs. And then we did the same thing inside of that, again, as an infill wall. Now in this case, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I had lots of scrap fiberglass because we were pulling it out of, out of the dumpsters and I didn't have any straw available. So I just shoved 12 inches of fiberglass in there. So this is plywood and fiberglass is how those walls are built. Uh, the advantage of these infill walls is they're great for low-skill labor, for community labor. These are all friends of mine. I could tell you their names, but that doesn't mean anything to you. Uh, so they stuff the fiberglass in there and give them a face mask, and then they do all the stucco. When they're slapping the stucco up, you can see the chicken wire. Now, if you're going on top of sheathing, uh, the ideal, you would, on top of plywood, chipboard, anything like that, the way I do it, and again, this is just my opinion, as I use a layer of roofing felt so the moisture can't get back into the wood, and then two layers of chicken wire. They used to make, if you want to do it the expensive way, you can use uh, expanded metal lath. 
uh, that is expensive stuff. Chicken wire is much cheaper. Uh, they used to make something called stucco wire. I can't find it anymore. It's a, it's a wire that has some depth to it. When you nail chicken wire straight on a piece of plywood, the, the wire is right against the wood. So basically we do one layer of chicken wire and then a second layer and the first layer of chicken wire kind of holds the second layer out a little bit, basically so the stucco can grip around the chicken wire. That is a lot more tedious and time consuming than just the not having the sheathing and going straight to the studs because you end up using a crap ton of nails to get that chicken wire flattened out against the plywood. But mind you, this is lumpy plywood. Like I said, it's just layered. It's not, not you know, butted up, sheeted. the sheets are not butted up against each other. And you can't tell the difference. It all works out smooth when you're done. But it's a lot of roofing nails. And we use staples. I had an electric staple gun. We used that some too to pop those staples in there to get the chicken wire to settle down. So anyway, this is a really cheap way to build. You get your friends, you know, figure out what they like to eat, uh, you know, get them some food and some soda or beer or whatever it is they want to do. Um, and they'll help you do the work, usually, if you have any friends. Uh, another big advantage I love about these uh, organic infill walls, we're going to call them, is you end up with these wonderful big windowsills. I usually put ceramic tile in the windowsills, uh, and sometimes I put ceramic tile up the sides. Sometimes I do ceramic tile and then sheetrock up the sides. Uh, the reason for that is I used to be a firefighter many years ago, and candles are one of the biggest reasons houses burn down, and they have these big windowsills. It's an invitation for somebody to put a candelabra up there. So having flame-proof windowsills, uh, and then they make many greenhouses. Of course, you can have passive solar, right? You can have a bunch of windows on the south side, and then those windows become uh, kind of an indoor greenhouse. Uh, that's an aloe plant. Aloe plants are kind of indestructible. Uh, reusing materials. Uh, we managed to find a lot of materials at Living Energy Farm. In the past, like I say, I've done a lot with bamboo. Uh, I've done a lot with uh, scrap foam and roofing material, all kinds of stuff. One of my favorite reusable materials is, is ceramic tile. Uh, this is, is a fast way to do ceramic tile. I think it looks pretty good. Of course, you can do cracked tile mosaic where you shatter each tile and then put it back together. That's really slow, at least if you're covering a lot of square footage. Uh, I call this the stone wall pattern. I just get a whole lot of ceramic tile. It's worth investing 50 or 80 bucks in a decent little tile cutter, not uh, an electric tile cutter, just one of those squirt and crack it kind of tile cutters. And then if you just mix light and dark, if you look, if you can't really tell this from the picture necessarily, but this is all tile that dates back to the 60s, basically. A local salvage yard had this mountainous pile of nine inch tile. And a bunch of it's really ugly tile. Uh, it's, uh, uh, but when you break it all up like this and you go light, dark, light, dark, you end up with this lovely stone wall pattern and you can get this kind of tile for very cheap or free. Uh, when I lived in town, I got gobs and gobs and gobs of tile for free. I would go by the, uh, the tile companies and the flooring installation companies, uh, the, some of these flooring retailers, and just either ask permission or just kind of cruise around the back of the building once a week if you can, and there's all kind of scrap, pick it up. Uh, the tile companies will often have display models and just leftover bits of scrap. Uh, if they leave it out back uh, for the mosaic makers to pick it up, then you pick it up for free. If they're not leaving it out back, then you might have to go in and ask them about it. Um, and then you pick it up, bring it home, make mosaics. It's great. I love mosaics. Um, all right, basic passive solar design. If you do, this is part of the reason I talk to people about don't worry about the energy because we have some very elaborate and very effective electrical systems out at Living Energy Farm. They're fantastic. But we built those after we came up with a good community-oriented design, shared housing. Oh, my phone. Everybody's trying to call me while I'm on a webinar here. Um, so... Uh, 
you do shared uh, shared wall housing, uh, good straw bale insulation, good insulation in the attic. Uh, you don't your solar electric is the last thing you want to worry about. If you get all of this other stuff really well, then your electrical demands are much lower. Your energy demands are much lower. If the average American home, I mean, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the history of construction, yada, yada. But everybody wants their house to look like a rich person lives there. So they all face toward the street. They're all made to look bigger than they really are. If you just took the ordinary American home and spent the exact same amount of money, turned it toward the south, moved, moved a few windows on the southern side, uh, took the money you were going to spend on a, a marble countertop and made the insulation a little thicker, you would knock the, the heating uh, cooling bills down by 70% probably. Uh, and I'll tell you, having lived, of all the buildings I've ever lived in, just a well-insulated passive solar house, that's, let's just say 80% is an arbitrary number. That's 80% of the battle in terms of cutting down your energy load. All this other solar electric shit is really um, not superfluous, but it's, it's secondary. So the distance of the overhang there is supposed to be about the distance uh, to the top of the window, but you don't have to worry about that too much. Uh, you want it on a good east-west axis, the long axis of the building, 15 degrees uh, east or west of, uh, 15 degrees off of the east-west axis is fine in terms of efficiency. If you tilt it 15 degrees toward the east, it's going to warm up a little more in the morning. Tilt it a little bit west, it's going to warm up a little more in the afternoon. You have to be a little careful, though, if those tilts also leave you picking up summer sun. Because if you're on a perfect east-west axis, then the summer sun angle doesn't come directly in those windows. And the winter sun angle does. Where we're at in Virginia, the winter sun angle is about 30 degrees. And it goes right through that uh, solar window. And then the summer sun is blocked by the overhang on the roof. So if you turn this building too much to the west in particular, you're going to pick up a bunch of sunshine and on a summer afternoon, it's going to warm your building up. Um, now, one thing I learned kind of accidentally, uh, low E coatings for, uh, for windows. For years, I had bought low E coatings uh, on windows. Any new window is going to have low E coatings on it. And if you go to like Wikipedia or any online site that talks about low E coatings, they talk about low emissivity and that blocks infrared radiation. It keeps the heat in. It wasn't until I started talking more with window uh, salespeople that I started to realize that there are about a half a dozen different low E coatings and that five out of the six are actually designed to block heat out. They're made to minimize summer air conditioning load, not minimize winter heating load. So if you're buying new windows, you need to talk to the window people. I buy uh, fiberglass clad wood was the last ones we built, bought. I bought fiber uh, aluminum clad wood were a little more expensive. I don't like vinyl, but, uh, and the fiberglass clad wood is only a little more expensive than vinyl and it's much better. But in any case, that involves talking to a window dealer and it means telling them, no, really, I want the low E that keeps the heat in, not the low E that blocks the heat out. So that's something to be aware of. Uh, and then solar windows on the south side, of course, uh, you know, there's a fig tree on the south side. In Virginia, we grow good figs in sheltered locations. Again, it just makes a building not only it's more comfortable, it's more pleasant to live in, uh, there's better lighting. Uh, Mark was talking about when we were starting up here, how uh, what a beautiful day it is in Virginia. It's actually really cloudy and overcast, but the building I'm in has solar features, uh, passive solar as well as active solar. So a bunch of big windows on the south side. So even on a cloudy day, we don't need any uh, electric lighting. Uh, this again is how, you know, good design, you start uh, helping yourself out. I don't need electric lights during the day, so I don't need an electrical system that's so big that would have to support those lights. Um, so if you're gonna do a bunch of glass on your south side, it really helps to do the thermal curtains. Uh, a website for these thermal curtains at the end of the presentation, 
This, I was telling you about the, the picture. This is the Living Energy Farm, our main house, uh, with an infrared camera on a bitter cold winter night. Uh, the two windows on the right have thermal curtains. That one very shiny window there, has the thermal curtain is pulled up specifically for the purposes of taking this picture. And there again, I was telling you how I regret not having more foam in the foundation. You can see that hot line right across the bottom of the building. That's the amount of heat that's coming through four inches of foam. Now, again, we haven't finished the earth berm. I want to bring the earth berm up to the level where it'll cover that. Um, so that'll help as well in any case. And then you can see our, uh, we have uh, uh, thermosiphon blocking uh, ducting, but in any case, there's a little bit of heat making its way up to those ducts at the top up there. That's our heating system for the house. So anyway, uh, you can buy super expensive European triple pane windows, um, maybe a couple thousand dollars per window. Alternately, if you use a thermal curtain, you can make a cheap window have the same thermal performance as a really expensive window just by doing these thermal curtains. Uh, they make a big difference. Even, I can tell you, we got the building finished. It was getting to be winter. We hadn't put the curtains up yet. Our main living room has a lot of glass. I'd step out there first thing in the morning. It's like, oh, there's a little chill in the air. After we put these thermal curtains, it made at least a five degree difference in the temperature of the building on a winter night, maybe closer. Anyway, it made a noticeable uh, thermal difference. Uh, uh, water heating, it's kind of unfortunate in a way that uh, solar electricity, well, it's, it, it's not a coincidence, but solar electricity, a bunch of politics behind that, the whole grid time mess, we talked about that. Solar hot water has a better payback than, than photovoltaic. Uh, and solar hot water doesn't need to be complicated. Now, if you're in a cold climate, uh, this isn't going to work for you. This is, uh, we can do batch collectors in Virginia. We get maybe seven months out a year out of them. Anything south of Virginia, they work great. Certainly in Florida or the tropics, this would be a 12 month, 11 or 12 month out of the year sort of water heater. Uh, I've done workshops where I teach people how to build these. You can build it from scratch and do a really fancy job. If you're trying to do it on the cheap, uh, you get an old refrigerator or a chest freezer, <clears throat> pop the door off, uh, make sure it's long enough to hold a water heater, find a water heater, if you can find an electric water heater that somebody threw away because the uh, thermostat went bad, that's great. Uh, you strip the metal jacket off of it, you're gonna have kind of a nasty job pulling the insulation off of there. But once you get down to the metal tank, you give that a quick rub with some wire brushes or uh, a wire brush mounted on an angle grinder, whatever you got, uh, and then paint it black. You can buy a fancy solar absorptive black paint or just use uh, black paint. Uh, plumb it exactly like the water heater would be plumbed, so the water pressure pushes its way through there and then back out. And you want to make sure your cold water comes in the cold water side because the water heater, a normal water heater has what's called a dip tube. So let's pretend this pipe here is the cold water. There's actually a plastic tube inside the tank that goes all the way down to the bottom and pushes the cold water down to the bottom so it doesn't mix with the hot water right at the top of the tank. You point this thing south at our latitude because of the 30 degree angle on the winter sun angle. You tip it up to close to 60 degrees thereabout. You don't have to worry about catching heat in the summertime. This thing will have way more heat than it needs in the summertime. If you're gonna be super cheap, you could put plastic over the front of it. Usually uh, patio glass is not too hard to come by. Uh, put uh, patio glass on the front of there. Uh, you could, if you wanna to go to another level of fancy, put some thermal shutters on there and close it at night. Uh, basically, if you imagine a sine curve of heating and cooling, a batch collector has a, a bigger curve. In other words, it loses more heat at night than a, than a fancier, more expensive flat plate system. But you can build this for junk, uh, for nothing. What you don't want to do, I've seen a number of people do this, where they get a coil of plastic pipe and they put a piece of glass over that in a box, that doesn't work. You need an actual water tank in your box. Don't just put a coil of pipe in there. Uh, put an actual tank in there. And we have actually one, well, I'll show you the next picture. All right, this is one that was donated to us and then we rebuilt it. 
It's got two smaller tanks. Uh, this is a nice little batch collector. It's actually stainless tanks in there. And then we went back, and this one was made out of old commercial doors instead of a refrigerator box. And we went back and insulated it better and, and uh, fixed it up. Uh, and it works great. A dozen people could have all the water they want out of that in the summertime to wash dishes, take showers. We had this set up before we had our main building set up. Uh, great uh, system. Uh, flat plate systems are more expensive, more complicated, quite a bit more expensive and more complicated. But if you live in a place that gets cold, you really need flat plate hot water. Uh, three by seven, three foot by seven foot, so about 21 square feet of uh, flat plate solar hot water collector is going to cost you generally, before shipping, about 600 bucks. You're going to be 800 bucks or more by the time you pay for shipping. Uh, so a minimal size system would have two of those collectors. A decent system is three. We have six at Living Energy Farm. Now we have several, you know, it's, it's meant to be for more than one person. This is where you really get, uh, in, you know, a community scale system. The per capita cost on a community scale system is going to be much better than on a uh, individual single family system. Uh, so these flat plate collectors, again, up at 60 degrees on the roof. Uh, you, there's when you do it as a DC system. Now I do not have all the components in here. I, there's pumps and expansion tanks. I'm not going to try to draw you a detailed uh, system here. But in any case. Uh, you, these go out in the in the sunshine and these storage tanks sit down in your house. We use what's called a closed loop system. So you're pumping up antifreeze into those panels. If you have AC power, uh, most people who have AC power do what's called drain back. So they actually pump uh, water up into those panels. Uh, you can do it either way. The, the pump for the uh, closed loop system is a much smaller pump, the DC pump. Uh, Anyway, these, pump, these systems were great, even in cold weather. In the bitterest cold of the cold, we have a wood backup heater uh, that we use at Living Energy Farm. Uh, but you can, you can use these systems and they store heat magnificently. I can take a shower. If we have one uh, sunny day, I can take a shower four days later and the water's still warm. That's what the batch collector can't do for you. Uh, you do need to learn how to work metal pipe, particularly this pipe that goes from the top of the collectors down to your storage tanks. Uh, that uh, needs to be. Uh, uh, metal, usually copper, but you could do it steel if you really wanted to. Uh, this is a building I built uh, with a large uh, solar hot water system. Now this uh, particular solar hot water system actually doubles as a house heating system. Uh, the design was not optimal, I was learning, and I managed to pick up these collectors for uh, used, so I pulled it off a lot cheaper than I otherwise would have. But in this case, there's antifreeze running through, that's 10 panels, then back down, heats up the hot water, and then also heats up the house. Uh, this house, I've mentioned it to you before, this house runs at, at least when I measured it, 91% below per capita energy use uh, for residential energy use. Uh, so, uh, and that's with no photo photovoltaic, just with the solar, uh, you got passive solar, big windows, there's big windows up there, and then the active solar heat here and no solar electricity whatsoever. You really get better bang for your buck with the thermal than, than you do with solar electricity. Um, I want to talk about composting toilets a little bit. Uh, conventional toilet systems uh, turn fertilizer into pollution. Composting toilets turn, make human waste into something you can use on fruit trees. Fruit trees love it. Uh, they don't have to be complicated. You don't, I, I do not recommend buying the expensive uh, residential scale uh, composter toilet systems, the one you can kind of like just put into your bathroom. Uh, those things, they don't work very well. They're kind of nasty to deal with. I don't recommend them. Uh, 
what's really simple and really cheap. Uh, it's called a Fiji net is one name for it. Although somebody told me that name and if you search for it on the internet, you don't find anything. But in any case, uh, if you just get a plastic drum, not a metal one, but a plastic 55 gallon drum or something there about that size, cut some air holes in the bottom. You probably want some screens over those air holes to keep the varmints out. You want a sturdy uh, screen across the bottom, stainless steel or heavy plastic. Uh, then you start with a base of wood chips, leaves, whatever you got. Wood chips or sawdust are better than leaves, but leaves will work, straw, whatever you got. Put a seat on top and that's it. Uh, you can set up multiple of these drums. Uh, of course, you can have a, a screen or, or outhouse or whatever built around it. You can build this into your house. So this can be in the basement. Your house is up here. There's a pipe coming down. Uh, I've seen that done before. And if you have heavy use and you want to do it on the cheap, you can do it like this. And then you have two or five or however many drums you need. You use this drum until it starts to fill up. You roll it to one side. After it decomposes a bit, you put it under your fruit trees. Uh, in Virginia, the Virginia Health Department code requires that the material coming out of this get buried. Uh, you uh, proceed at your own discretion. There's a book actually called the, uh, well, the Human or Handbook. That guy believes in building compost piles with human waste. I don't like to do that. But in any case, uh, the uh, Compost Toilet Book, I think that's the title of it, has good information as well. Both of those books have good information about composting human waste. Uh, slightly more sophisticated version. This is what we did. Uh, at Living Energy Farm or what I've done in other places is you actually build a cinder block tank uh, you with one or two seats on each side uh, and a cinder block partition up the middle, a screen across the bottom, wire mesh, uh, stainless or plastic so the air can get under the pile. Use one side for six months or a year, use the other side for six months or a year, pull this material out and again the fruit trees love it. Uh, the simple way to do that, this is the actual composter at uh, Living Energy Farm is when you're doing your foundation, uh, the cinder block down there, that's the ground level uh, down there. You can see kind of outside where ground level is. You just keep coming up with one, two, three, four. They came up five more rows of cinder blocks above the foundation level. And then we just slap a sealer on those uh, cinder blocks, a, a quick parge coat and a sealer. So we've actually got two uh, booths on this side, two booths on the left side. Uh, so we'll use one side for six months or a year. Uh, when that's uh, broken, you know, while that's while we're using the other side, that first side's breaking down, uh, get rid of that material. You need to put in enough organic matter that you don't have a lot of liquid runoff. It does help to have a drain at the bottom uh, going to a convenient location. What I have found is that if you have a big party, like somebody gets married, you have a big wedding, a bunch of people aren't used to peeing outdoors, come and pee on your composting toilet, you'll get some moisture coming out of your drain pipe. You drain that over to your rose bushes or whatever, keep it buried. Uh, that works fine. Uh, and this is the inside of our composting toilet. Again, this is, check out these 1960s vintage tiles. So you can make it look nice. Uh, we did a, a five gallon bucket with poured concrete around it. So then you can ceramic tile around the outside of that. Uh, so there you go. Uh, this is more like a permanent, well-built composting toilet. The Fiji net is kind of quick and dirty. Um, another little trick that, uh, I'm not big on skylights. Uh, they lose heat, <laughs> they often leak. Uh, but when I've been asked to work on a house that has, um, existing skylights, uh, the way to do skylights and make them from a thermal liability into a thermal asset, uh, Zoneworks was a company that came up with this design and they sell this cover unit, at least they used to. I don't actually know if they still do, but anyway, Zoneworks is a great company. They got some good stuff. I think it's just zoneworks.com, but you can look it up. Uh, so the problem with the skylight is you've got your sun that shines directly through it in the summertime, generates a tremendous amount of heat. And in the wintertime at night, you're losing all your heat right back out. They really work against you. But what you can do, uh, you can take a, a metal cover, and I've done this with just aluminum roofing metal, 
and some aluminum uh, combination of, of square tube, flat bar, whatever you got, um, and uh, build a cover. And then there's some little arms that stick up. So this cover is actually six or eight inches above the skylight. This is your summer position. So the light kind of comes around the cover. So you get the benefit of natural light. And then wintertime, you kick this thing up, you've got an arm that sticks up, uh, you know, a bolt with a wing nut or whatever to hold it up. And this hopefully is facing south. And the bottom of that serves as a reflector and brings the heat in, and that becomes a lovely solar collector. Uh, these are the homemade version I've done. Like I said, you can buy a commercial version. Uh, really uh, improves the performance of skylights. I really like them. Um, now, this picture, uh, this is from the early days of Living Energy Farm. I had to stick this in there because this is just a cute picture of, of my family and our, our solar setup. Uh, this predates our big house. Uh, but solar cooking, of course, there's the batch collector you saw earlier. This is the building that you saw being stuccoed earlier. It's built without studs, uh, just plywood. That one little 100 watt PV panel uh, powered our nickel iron batteries, took care of all our lighting, as well as wanting a DC pump to pump water up from the creek back there. So this was pretty much all built with salvaged junk and it's very comfortable uh, structure, uh, very low energy use, not, not as sophisticated as our main house because we don't have, I did put some pipes for radiant floor system in there, but I don't have it hooked to anything. So you can build with junk and still come up with really passive solar too here, of course, on the south, uh, these big windows facing south. Uh, on a sunny winter day, even if it was pretty cold, we didn't need to build a fire in there at all. We had a tiny little wood stove to back it up. Um, we could take showers, like I said, seven months out of the year, wash dishes with hot water. Uh, it, the thing is, you know, people live in house trailers and these campers and whatnot. Again, it comes back to people not wanting to look like they're poor. You can gather up junk and sticks out of the woods and a little bit of chicken wire if you can find it and build something that has thermal performance that's radically better than, than a trailer and build it for close to nothing, um, not quite nothing. I mean, we bought the roofing metal for this. I didn't have scrap roofing metal. So it's not free, but it's way cheap. But it looks, historically, it looks more like what poor people do. Poor people do stuccoed walls, they do thick wall housing, they do things that are kind of blend into the earth and to the ground. So we've developed this bias towards industrial products, including industrial housing. So now millions of people all over the world, all over Virginia certainly, buy house trailers that are horrible thermally. They pay a bunch of money for them. When they could build something like this themselves, uh, it really is kind of a shame we're so locked into our own cultural stupidity. Uh, so we're gonna go through a, a checklist of what to do and what not to do. Uh, as I said before, don't try to build alone. Everybody wants their own homestead. I know, okay, fine, get over that. Uh, find some other people to work with, find a community. Uh, there's no such thing as a, a self-sufficient, uh, ecologically sound homestead at this point. You really gotta find other people to work with. But I've beaten that horse to death, so I won't beat it anymore. This is a work crew putting up a pole barn. Our, our, uh, a lot of our structures at Living Energy Farm were built out of poles. This was in the early days. That land was clear cut before we got it. Uh, so we were just using scrap that the loggers ran over and left behind. Um, one thing I run into a lot in talking with people about green building is they say, I wanna build a tire house. And I say, now slow down, wait a minute. Uh, what works great in New Mexico is really gonna suck in Virginia. Tire houses, the earthship thing, it's not my thing. I don't like building with tires. But uh, as far as building into the ground in a desert climate, that's gonna work great. Uh, the, the summer humidity is pretty low. You get the thermal benefit of having all that dirt wrapped around you. You got some more cost if you're gonna try to put dirt over the roof because you're gonna have to build a really strong roof. If you build this house in Virginia or in the tropics, you would either have to spend a tremendous amount of energy 
uh, blowing air through it with dehumidifiers and fans and all that, or the whole building is going to turn green. Uh, so you don't want to do that in Virginia. What do people build in the tropics? Uh, they build houses with a tremendous amount of airflow through it. Uh, you wouldn't want to build that in Maine. So this is your Maine house uh, or Ar Maine or Arizona. I don't know if a tire house, I take that back. I don't know if a tire house would work so well in Maine. I'll let you decide. This is your Arizona house. Uh, this is your house in Brazil. And then in Maine, I don't know, straw bale, whatever. You have to figure out what works in your local climate. Don't assume that rainwater catchment is a good idea all over the place. It's great in some places, really silly in other places. Don't assume that building in the ground is a good idea. It's great in some places, silly in other places. Don't assume that different kinds of organic materials are great anywhere. It really depends. One thing you deal with when you go further south is more insects, more termites. You really need to figure out what works in your local area. Now, I ran out of pictures to illustrate all these points, so we're just going to read through them point by point here uh, before we run out of time. Uh, so when it comes, number three, spend your money on uh, good roofing, good windows and insulation, subgrade insulation. Those are the, your top priority in terms of buying industrial material. Uh, I mean, if you can find used metal to put on your roof, fine. But you want good, I have recommend enameled metal, but some kind of metal on your roof, that's where you want to spend your money. Don't go out and get crappy windows that you found in the landfill. Get good windows, spend the money on that. Subgrade insulation is expensive, spend your money there. And then if you're down to nothing, you can uh, you know, use bamboo for the walls, I don't care. But you want good windows, good insulation, and good roofing. Uh, don't get anything less than decent quality double pane windows. I guess it's kind of said that. Uh, but a, a decent double pane window, again, with the thermal curtain, you've got something the equivalent of a multi-thousand dollar European, European triple pane window. I've seen people rebuild and recycle old used windows. Don't do that. It, it really works against you. Uh, passive solar, uh, no brainer. That's number five. Uh, don't worry about solar electric and all that stuff until you get basic insulation and passive solar design worked out. Uh, don't think about adding more insulation. Don't think that adding a bit more insulation than most people would use is enough insulation. So the standard historically in the United States was two by four stud frames, plastered walls with no insulation. Then somewhere back around World War II, people started putting a little bit of fiberglass in there. People nowadays, I've seen them put up a two by six wall and say, well, I've got a ton of insulation. It's like, well, for as much as it costs you to put up that two by six wall, I can make an 18 inch thick wall and it has a lot more insulation. And again, you know, if you want to live in a tent, that's fine. Live in a tent, I don't care. But if you're trying to build a building that's going to last for decades and decades, uh, thick walls make sense. They totally make sense. Uh, now, blowing insulation into your attic. I've seen some recipes for homemade insulation. Uh, I haven't pursued that. You do need a lot of fire retardant if you're going to make any kind of homemade insulation in the attic. Um, you do want, it, it does pay for itself to have a lot of insulation in the attic. Uh, so whether it's blown in cellulose, blown in fiberglass, you decide, but you want a lot of it. Uh, spend your money there. Uh, good overhangs, uh, good moisture protection. The, some of the straw bale people get all excited about breathability and walls. Uh, my experience having built and rebuilt a number of houses, the only time I have seen moisture damage inside of a wall is from leakage, either from plumbing leaks, roof leaks, or leaks around a window. If Or if you're building a building that deals with very high commercial uh, like a commercial food processing facility, anything with commercial cooling in it, like the walls around a commercial walk-in refrigerator will collect an enormous amount of moisture. But in a normal house, unless you have a big freezer shoved against the wall, unless you're putting a shower right against the straw bale wall, don't do that, obviously, you're not gonna have moisture building up in your walls. Um, you do wanna moisture proof them on the outside, I'll tell you how to do that. Um, 
as far as differences, you'll hear that's fine. Uh, don't be afraid to ask both the experts and the networks their opinions of your design. What I always do is I draw up my designs, I get my ideas, put it all on a piece of paper, and I just let everybody and their mother look at it. And of course, a lot of people have a lot of bad ideas, but some good ideas come out of that too. And don't be surprised if the experts give you really different opinions. That's the way it is. If you talk to a number of different carpenters are worth far more, good carpenters worth a lot. Find a good carpenter who has a lot of experience with remodeling and whatnot, and they'll tell you what to do and what to avoid. Um, avoid dead air spaces, especially in any climate with damp summers, everything must ventilate. Uh, you don't want a, a room with just a window on one side of the room and nothing else. You want windows on two sides of the room, or if you're in a private house where you're gonna keep the door open fine, uh, I'm assuming, of course, you're not running an air conditioner. You can do that, that's your choice. But even with an air conditioner, buildings that ventilate well work better. Uh, we have a lot of exterior doors at Living Energy Farm, and then we uh, 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 put thermal curtains in front of those exterior doors so we get through ventilation from the doors and the windows. Uh, unless you're building a TP, flat straight lines are cheaper and better. So all of these clear stories, you know, we got windows up and, you know, you do a, an offset uh, thing in your roof or skylights. I mean, that's all really pretty, but man, does it heat leak. Uh, a flat ceiling uh, with a bunch of insulation in it is a much, much tighter building. I encourage people to keep the building's lines simple and then take out your creativity in mosaics, in other artsy stuff inside the building, but keep the building line simple unless you got a ton of money. But if you're trying to build efficient, simple building lines are a huge benefit. Uh, plan your utilities as an integral part of the design, not something you add on later. How many buildings have you been in where you have to turn, you know, you, you go to take it, wash your hands with warm water, and it takes 30 minutes for the water to get from the water heater to the sink. Uh, I put my water heater, uh, water heating equipment on the opposite side of the wall from where the water is used. Uh, there's never a pipe run more than six feet usually. But in any case, think about the heating systems, the water heating systems as part of the design. Again, don't just, you know, build, design a pretty building and then shove the other stuff in there later. Um, don't even think about adding solar features until you've worked out the questions of context and insulation. Uh, I've seen some really expensive and ineffective solar heating and power systems added to badly insulated buildings. I've seen that uh, over and over again. It's really see, uh, silly. Uh, don't buy cheap or used appliances uh, unless you have an ability to assess their energy use. Uh, there's been a lot of regulation that has pushed up the efficiency of, of modern appliances. Even a normal brand new cheap appliance is generally better than crap you get for sale that's used, it's burning up a bunch of energy. And now, let's see, I've got a little watt meter, it's called a kilowatt, now that's an AC meter, but if you're in a conventional AC house, you can get a watt meter for, I forget what they are, 20 bucks or something, plugs right into the wall, you can plug your fridge into that. Uh, refrigerators in particular, the efficiency has evolved enormously. Some of them can burn several hundred dollars a year in electricity, no joke. Uh, any modern cheap refrigerator is gonna be $50 or less in electricity if it's a decent fridge. All right, let's talk about resources. Uh, these are the companies or just places where you can get more information about the stuff we're talking about. Uh, the first one is an overview of some of the stuff we've done at LEF. Uh, you're welcome to look at, look at that at your leisure. High quality DC brushless pumps. Now these are pumps that you're gonna use as a well pump. Uh, that is uh, Sun Pumps is the American company. They make both brushless and brush pumps. For a submersible well pump, you definitely want brushless. Uh, two German companies, Grunfos and Lorenz, they're both super high quality companies. Uh, another company in the U.S. that makes really small pumps is called Robeson, also brushless. Uh, so those are the companies that I know of that make really good uh, 
submersible pumps, uh, high quality uh, pumps. Uh, high quality, moder moderately priced wood fired equipment. There's this wonderful company in Pennsylvania called DS Machine. They do not have a website. They are honest to goodness uh, Amish. Uh, the funny thing about the Amish is they're not allowed to have rubber tires, but they like to buy land when they have children. So they want to earn money. They will run fully tooled out welding shops, machine shops, running diesel generators. Uh, this shop that makes this equipment is a modern state of the art. They make very good equipment in my experience. We have a stainless canner that was made by them as well as a wood-fired water heater that was made by them. I found they are in Lancaster County and I found a website uh, sponsored by the county that has a reference to them. Uh, so you can get a hold of them through that website that's listed right there that you can see. Um, so the thermal curtains, the, one you, the, the ones that you saw uh, in the picture earlier, uh, how to make those is at coomproject.com. Very simple, cheap design, uh, but it helps to have some design up front. I'll tell you, these, these curtains do work better than other designs I've seen. I really like them. A good source for reclaimed foam insulation subgrade for building homemade solar heating panels. Now, if you're building homemade solar hot air or hot water panels, you, know, you need isocyanurate or polyisocyanurate. If you're going down below grade, you can use styrene, which is much cheaper than isocyanurate. I've sent a lot of people to this company. I don't know if everybody's bought them out of insulation yet. This is a nationwide company, but they have warehouses, um, at least up and down the East Coast. I don't know if they go out West, actually. If you're willing to get broken sheets from them, you can get it really cheap. Uh, they have some other stuff, too, other than insulation sometimes. Uh, call them up and ask them about roofing material or see if they get any other random crap around. But they're very cheap. Uh, we bought quite a bit of stuff from them. Had great luck with them. Uh, so the waterproofing material we used in our stucco at Living Energy Farm, we've only used this starting a few years ago, so I can't swear to its long-term viability, but uh, I strongly recommend having a waterproofing material on exterior stucco with straw bale buildings. There are a lot of spray-on uh, uh, concrete sealers. You can use those to quickly easy, but some an admix is something that actually goes into the concrete or into the stucco, and it's much more durable long-term, so that's really better. The one I found is called KMA, Crystal Mortar Admixture, made by some random Chinese company. Uh, really cheap, non-toxic, seems to work. Uh, so you can buy a bucket of this stuff and you've got, and it mixes in at a very, uh, it doesn't take much, a little goes a long way. Uh, so uh, hopefully that'll last them the long term, but it is mixed in with the cement, so it shouldn't degrade anyway. Um, Skylights, I told you about Zoneworks, uh, Sunbender, I don't know if that, uh, anyway, you just go to zoneworks.com and see if that skylight design is still there, but Zoneworks has some other uh, great um, products as well. It's a good company. Uh, my uh, solar hot water pumps, closed loop CL SID pumps, numerous suppliers. Uh, so that last little paragraph there has got two things stuck together there. Uh, this is for closed loop, not drain back, closed loop systems where you're pumping antifreeze up to the top. The LCID pump really is a unique pump. Uh, it is a fantastic little pump. You build these systems, I run them at a little higher pressure than most people do, put a higher pressure pressure release like a 50 pound instead of a 30 pound. You get that LCID pump, you get it set up, it runs straight off of a PV panel, no computers, no thermostats, no nothing. It'll run for decades without anybody touching it. Fantastic design. Other solar hot water components, uh, found a company in Florida, AET Solar. I think that stands for Alternative Energy Technologies or something like that. Um, they have really nice stainless water tanks. Now these tanks are not cheap, uh, but they do. They are nice tanks. 
If you're building a large solar hot water system, you can build a much cheaper system using a plastic tank, a non-pressurized tank, and a pressurized heat exchanger just kind of hanging in the tank. Um, that's cheaper. If you're doing a smaller system or you don't mind kicking out the money for a stainless tank, AET has got great tanks. They also have good solar collectors, uh, good company uh, based on my experience. Um, so that's some of what I know about uh, green building. Uh, so Mark, are you there? Hey. Hey, awesome. questions? All right, yeah, we'll do that. Uh, before we go to questions, uh, that was um, a lot of awesome information, folks. So uh, start thinking about that. Uh, start typing your questions, questions, and um, we have couple of PDFs uh, that you can download by just by clicking expand the handout section and click on um, the PDF files, uh, one from last week and one is for this week. So you can get both of those. And you can also get the replays on our website, eatcommunity.com. Um, if you didn't come to the previous session uh, with Alexis and that was about solar, uh, batteries, basically, he was talking about different kinds of batteries and solar systems. You can check that out. And one more thing, uh, we have, after this session, we'll, we'll have um, a webinar highlight sessions. So we'll show you little clips from um, some of the webinars we did this week. So stick around for that. Now I will um, look at, uh, do we have questions from the audience? All right. So I think we have, um, let me see, we have a couple of questions. One is from Alicia. So any thoughts in meeting local building codes uh, with these proposals? Uh, well, the thing with building code is uh, the way building code is enforced is tremendously variable. All, most of what I showed you here, Living Energy Farm was built to code, our systems were inspected, uh, but we do have fairly cooperative building inspectors in this area. Uh, if you don't know your building inspectors, the thing to do is to go out and talk to local carpenters, talk to people who built houses in your area and just get a feel for them. You know, are they completely neurotic? Are they really relaxed? Um, and then it doesn't hurt to actually look at the code yourself. Now, different areas use different codes. Historically, there were a number of international codes. What's happened in Virginia, if they, if they consolidated that under a state code, but that varies uh, state by state, country by country, wherever you are. Um, what I tell people generally is you either want to be the building inspector's best friend or, you, or, or just stay out of sight. Um, if you are going to develop a relationship with them, you know, try to keep it positive, try to be as communicative as you can with them, try to get a feel for the personality. Uh, most of what I talked about here is well within code, uh, not all of it necessarily. But like with the composting toilets, for instance, in Virginia, that's not in the building code but there's a Virginia Department of Health regulations that talk about composting toilets. So that kind of gives it some legitimacy. Uh, so you can kind of look around. Generally speaking, the, the gray water and composting systems are harder than like straw bale. At least in the US, straw bale has been used all over the place. Most building inspectors are fine with it. Um, uh, we ran into some headache with the inspectors around. They had approved our DC electrical systems, but the guy who approved it left and we got new inspectors in that started to give us a bunch of grief about it. We managed to work it through, um, but you know, there's not one 
magic bullet for all of that, but it really helps to kind of know the lay of the land, get, get to know the inspectors. Uh, you know, most codes like the VRC is what we're under, the Virginia Residential Code, it's online. So you can go online and look at it. Uh, most building codes are gonna refer back to the NEC, the National Electrical Code in the US. I don't know what there is in other countries. You can go read that too, although the NEC is much thicker to plow through than the VRC. Uh, so some of these codes are easy to read. The VRC, the Virginia Residential Code, is pretty easy to read. The NEC, Natural, National Electrical Code, is, is difficult to get through. If you can find, you know, carpenters, professional electricians, professional plumbers who can talk to you about how to work with code, how to get around local stuff, that would be fantastic. Uh, you want to be a little bit careful about just kind of storming in there and assuming that, they, that you can talk them into doing it your way. It really depends. Uh, some inspectors are really cooperative. Some of them can make your life absolutely miserable. But generally speaking, there's nothing in code that prevents super insulation, solar heat, solar electricity. The electrical codes are some, the electrical codes and the health codes are the two that are the trickiest. For we, we, we had really good luck with being exempted from parts of the electrical code or working around that. The health codes, we spent a bunch of money that we wasted a bunch of money basically to meet the codes, uh, which was unfortunate. That was the best we could do. Uh, so you really have to kind of figure out the lay of the land, basically. All right. Um, here's a question from Anita Johnson. She asks, um, best locations for building codes? So um, I guess she's, I, I'm not sure what the question is. Best locations. Well, uh, well I can't, here's, I don't know where you are, Anita. But in the US, most of the country, geographically speaking, most of the country has no building code. Uh, to have a building code, a rural county has to have enough of a budget to pay building inspectors. Uh, so any city is gonna have building code. Any suburban residential area is gonna have building code. Most of the rural United States has no building code. So particularly out West, you know, Nebraska, Idaho, Missouri, you know, nine, you know, only in the cities is there any building code. There are health code regulations, generally speaking, even in those areas. You're not supposed to dump sewage on the ground, even if you're in the middle of the desert in Texas, but in the middle of the desert in Texas, there probably is no local building inspector and you can probably build what you want. Uh, again, you can ask the locals to figure out that out, but if you really wanna get around building code, uh, that some communities have done that, like uh, cohabitation is another issue. Like in cities, a lot of cities have, uh, zoning and building code are two connected, but separate issues. A lot of cities, most cities have rules against allowing people to live together, which is really stupid, but that's what they have. Um, you can get around that just by going outside of the city, going to an area where there's no zoning and, and no building codes. And that is most of the United States. Right. So Anita, has, Anita clarifies a little bit. So she says, I'm in Illinois, Northwest of Chicago. Um, they are rather fussy around here. Um, we are pondering uh, moving elsewhere. So she's asking what state is best for having, probably having no codes, um, <laughs> government. <laughs> well, like I said, the, the, uh, the, the rural areas are gonna have no code, no, no building code and no zoning code. Uh, a lot of the really rural areas. Now you have to decide whether or not you wanna live in a really rural area. Now, as far as the urban and suburban areas, it can be tremendously variable. It, there's no, I mean, there's nobody alive who would have the information to say, you know, this county here, just, I can just tell you locally where I'm living, you know, this county is, is really relaxed. The city that's nearby is really relaxed. 
But one county south of that city, the building department got sued by somebody who bought a house and the house collapsed. It was on a mountainside and they sued the county. So now that county is, is really difficult to build in just because of that one lawsuit. There's no way you can look at a map and figure that out. You just have to talk to people who live in that local area and figure it out. That's all you can do. Hey. So uh, Anita, Anita says, thank you. Good inputs, um, Alexis. So, all right, you're welcome, Anita. Okay, she has a comment. Uh, Honeydew Carpenter on YouTube is uh, developing an air crate system, which sounds pretty affordable um, for insulative uh, properties, chimney stacks. All right, so, okay. Um, all right, so I don't see any um, any other questions. Anybody else, if you've got any questions, we'll give you two. Okay, here's one question from Robert Hayes. Um, Michael Reynolds, Archive site has zones of freedom map for areas of less less code um, enforcement. All right, so that's a that's a comment from Robert. Thank you for that. Anybody else, uh, if you got any questions? Um, type your questions in and we're we're about to end in a few minutes we'll end here um, Alexis if you have any last words um, <laughs> no, I enjoyed doing it again if you have more questions you want to ask after the webinar you can also get in touch with us at Living Energy Farm we're happy to respond to people as time allows okay awesome all right folks so everybody uh, thank you for for uh, being with us and thank you Alexis for another awesome session with us and please everybody come back for next week and uh, we'll say goodbye here. Hey everybody, I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT community podcast. Thank you.